This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England. The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle introduced the world to the electrifying imagination of Stuart Turton. The novel was a dazzling blend of the board game Clue, the TV show Quantum Leap, and the film Groundhog Day that quickly became an international bestseller. His follow-up, The Devil and the Dark Water, is an equally compelling blend of murder, mayhem and fantastic goings-on, which is set aboard a 17th century merchant ship en route to Amsterdam from the Dutch East Indies. Before I introduce Stuart Turton, let's allow him to transport us to the teeming docks of Batavia in the year 1634, through the book's opening lines. Arendt Hayes howled in pain as a rock slammed into his massive back. Another whistled by his ear. A third striking his knee, causing him to stumble, bringing jeers from the pitiless mob who were already searching the ground for more missiles to throw. Hundreds of them were being held back by the city watch, their spittle-flecked lips shouting insults, their eyes black with malice. "'Take shelter for pity's sake!' implored Sammy Pips over the din, his manacles flashing in the sunlight as he staggered across the dusty ground. "'It's me they want!' Arendt was twice the height and half again the width of most men in Batavia, including Pips. Although not a prisoner himself, he'd placed his large body between the crowd and his much smaller friend, offering them only a sliver of target to aim at. The Bear and the Sparrow, They'd been nicknamed before Sammy's fall. Never before had it appeared so true. Pips was being taken from the dungeons to the harbour, where a ship waited to transport him to Amsterdam. Four musketeers were escorting them, but they were keeping their distance, wary of becoming targets themselves. You pay me to protect you, snarled Arendt, wiping the dusty sweat from his eyes as he tried to gauge the distance to safety. I'll do it until I can't any more. The harbour lay behind a huge set of gates at the far end of Batavia's central boulevard. Once those gates closed behind them, they'd be beyond the crowd's reach. Unfortunately, they were at the tail end of a long procession moving slowly in the heat. The gates seemed no closer now than when they'd left the humid dampness of the dungeon at midday. A rock thudded into the ground at Arendt's feet, spraying his boots with dried dirt. Another ricocheted off Sammy's chains. Traders were selling them out of sacks and making good coin doing it. Damn Batavia, snarled Arendt. Bastards can't abide an empty pocket. On a normal day, these people would be buying from the bakers, tailors, cordwainers, binders and candlemakers lining the boulevard. They'd be smiling and laughing, grumbling about the infernal heat. But manacle a man, offer him up to torment, and even the meekest soul surrendered itself to the devil. Julian Rind Tut, narrating The Devil in the Dark Water, written by my guest, Stuart Turton. Stuart Turton, welcome to My Life in Books. Oh, thanks for having me. It's good to talk to you again. We've just met Sammy Pips, the world's greatest detective, 
And as the flyleaf of the book says, soon he's going to need every part of his deductive powers. And you take the perverse decision to put him in chains and lock him up and leave all the detection to his Watson-like sidekick, Arant Hayes. Why is that? Uh, I think you used the word perverse. I quite like that. I think that, that, that tickles me as an author. In sort of everything I'm trying to do, I want to take the most perverse decisions. I want to do the things that you're not expecting that come across as kind of strange or sort of make people wonder why I took that decision. If you think about Sherlock Holmes, and this is a riff that I'm not, I'm not hiding that at all. This this detective duo had a riff on Sherlock Holmes and Watson. I've got Sammy Pips, who is my Sherlock Holmes, and I've got Aaron, who is my Watson. But if I just had my Sherlock Holmes, my Sammy, running around the boat, all I've done is written a Sherlock Holmes novel on a boat. And Conan Doyle could have done that all those years ago. I'm not adding anything. I'm not messing with it. I'm not playing with it. And it's not very interesting for either me or the reader. So I knew, immediately knew I wanted to mess around with that partnership. I wanted to go into depth in it. I wanted to get into why would somebody like Aaron Hayes, who's an upstanding, honourable, good-hearted man, why would he follow someone like Sammy Pips around? Like, what is the crux of that relationship? I was fascinated by that. As I'm fascinated by the Sherlock Holmes and Watson relationship, I generally don't get that relationship. I don't get what Watson sees in Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes is a prick. He is an absolute dickhead. And he is a dickhead from the first book all the way through to the last book. And he never changes and it bewilders me. So I wanted to get into that. And the second part of it is that I locked him up because it's really hard to write a novel with Sherlock Holmes as a protagonist. Conan Doyle never did it. I mean, there's a few stories. They're not very good. But Conan Doyle generally wrote it from Watson's point of view. But if you think about the way those novels unfold, Sherlock Holmes uses all of his best powers 10 seconds into the novel. Like he does, somebody's walking down the street outside and he knows everything about that person, absolutely everything before they ever get to his door. It's amazing. And then the novel starts and he gets in the mystery and he suddenly, his powers almost desert him. He's suddenly dependent on like seeing something written on the wall that the police didn't notice or footsteps outside that the police didn't notice. There's these really weird lapses in this superpower of deduction that he has. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted Sammy Pips to operate at 100% capacity from the beginning of the book to the end of the book. I always wanted him to have his superpower. But if he's the protagonist, the novel's over in 20 pages because he should, by all rights, be able to solve the entire damn mystery in, yeah, 20 pages. So I had to do something. So it became a sort of like structural problem. And my, my answer to that was just to get rid of him, just to shove him off to one side and let this other character take his place. And... That was just infinitely more fun for me to write. And Sammy has complete and utter faith in his own abilities, just like Sherlock Holmes. And Aaron Hayes has complete and utter faith in Sammy's abilities to solve any mystery, but he has no self-belief. Yeah, I thought that, as I say, I was trying to dig into this relationship between these two characters and try and figure out how it would work. Because the way I've set Aaron up, he's not the sort of guy who would actually like Sammy Pips, they wouldn't necessarily get along. And yet they're thrown into this adventure together. They have this dynamic. And when I was trying to explore the actual truth of that dynamic, why is it happening? And I realised it was almost spiritual. Arendt is almost like the high priest of this religion that is Sammy Pips. Like he adores him. And like he's able to look over and ignore his flaws 
because of what he can do, because of these powers, because of the, the good that he thinks he could do the world. And I just thought there was something fascinating in that, something about, you know, if you stand next to genius, even if you're a genius yourself, you would feel stupid. And that's what's happening to Aaron. He's clearly not stupid, and yet he's overlooking all this stuff in Sammy's character because he genuinely believes there's such goodness that can be accomplished through him. I think that way has led to hell for a lot of people. Now, obviously, it's one of your books, so there is an impossible murder to solve. And it seems that everybody amongst the passengers and the crew of cutthroats and 'er ne'er-do-wells has a secret. Yeah. So basically, to get into the weeds of sort of like writing a mystery novel, the easiest way to do it is to have a big... And this is what I've discovered through writing two of these, so please don't anyone take this as gospel, but... The easiest way I've found to do it is to introduce a fairly large cast of characters with their eccentricities, give them all a secret and give them all complexity. You want everybody in your book to be a little bit good and a little bit bad so that your reader is never entirely sure which way that person's leaning. So they can generally believe that person could commit a crime, yet simultaneously kind of quite like them. And that's what I'm always trying to reach for with every character, right? I tried to do this with my first novel, Seven Deaths. I tried to do it with Devil. I'm trying to do it with my third novel as well. I want characters to have that shade so that from chapter to chapter, your feelings on them change. At a structural level, that just means that they could have committed the crime. And if you give them a secret, what you're doing then is you're giving your investigator false alleys to run down and false things to sort of investigate. So you don't have to throw red herrings, like false clues, empty clues at the reader. You can give them compelling mysteries to solve. Just the wrong mystery. One of the characters who has got a dark secret that she's trying to cover up and a genius daughter who she's trying to keep secret from the rest of the passengers and crew is the character of Sarah. And something that we learn early on is that in 1634, women have very few rights and really need to hide any intelligence or skills that they have. And that just must have been red meat to your subversive sense of humour. Yeah, I'd love doing that. Because there's a couple of things. The sense of humour is a great one because it means that the best humour comes out of the darkest situations. I've got a few friends who are like ambulance drivers and doctors and their jokes are so horrifically dark, but they are hysterically funny because that's how you battle that darkness with this tremendous light. So I wanted Sarah to have that sort of gallows sense of humour about her own situation. But again, you talk about, at least I talk about every novel, every character, they should have hurdles to overcome. They should have a secret. They should have something they've got to overcome. Everything should be a problem. So every grain of truth, every inch they claw into the mystery, I want them to scrap for it. They have to overcome a hurdle. 1634, there's no greater hurdle than just being a woman. Like, even just to get out of her cabin, Sarah, you know, she has to leap through hoops just to walk around a ship. So for me as a writer, creating a character, that is glorious because you're learning so much about her just by the fact that she wants to do this in the first place. It makes her so compelling. It makes her fascinating. Whereas with someone like Sammy, who can just sidle around the ship doing anything you want oh cax is locked up but normally he would be able to saddle around the ship doing anything he wants that would be less interesting for me to write now as we've said the impossible murder 
comes some way into the voyage. There have been plenty of portents of what is going to go wrong, and we really do need to discuss some of the supernatural elements of the novel that the crew certainly suspect means that their voyage is doomed. For instance, there is a twice-dead leper stalking the decks. Yeah, Brad, I, you didn't make the compulsory noise <laughs> when, when you talked about the supernatural elements. That is, that's a requisite. Okay. Da, 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 da. Thank you very much. Now we're on even ground. <laughs> um, that was the trickiest thing to write in this novel, actually, because you want the novel always to walk this tightrope of feeling that it could have a paranormal uh, solution, or it might not. It might be a more uh, everyday solution. But I wanted you to constantly be flipping back and forth between those two. I want the reader to constantly not know where they stand. So one minute they're absolutely convinced that it has to be this person on the crew or one of the passengers, and the next they're like, no, it could be this devil. This does feel incredibly supernatural. There's no other explanation for the way these things are happening. And it was just about, I would often find as I was writing it, the novel would tilt just completely because I would be so invested in writing the supernatural stuff and I'd be really into it that I'd just keep writing that stuff and I'd be like, no, 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 got to pull back now and give it like a more mundane explanation. God, mundane miss. It's a terrible word to use in an interview when promoting a book, isn't it? There's nothing <laughs> mundane about my book. I'm sorry, that's an awful word. Um, but I hope everyone gets my gist. Definitely. And, you know, we have to realise that we are also dealing in 1634. There is a lot of religious folklore and fear and superstition going around. You introduce old Tom, who is a, a dark devil from folkloric history, who, who stalks along murdering those who don't display the right kind of faith. And this was the era of burning people as witches yeah and when we say people i mean we mostly mean old women don't we mm. and so and some young women but yeah there were some uh, men burned as witches but in a lot of my research it was fundamentally women but it's something like old tom was one of those strange things to write it was not a joy because when i set out with old tom i didn't know kind of what i was getting myself into i knew that this period was rife with superstition and the occult I knew that there was serious investigation into the devil and the devil's works and the hierarchies of hell in the same way that there was in the Bible. This was the area when people started getting fascinated by the idea of angels and the hierarchy of angels, but they were doing it with equal vigor for hell and for Satanism. And there was this discrepancy as well between you had a sort of middle class, which to us would be an upper class, very wealthy kind of learned individual who were laughing at this. You thought it was all ridiculous. But then kings and queens were a lot more invested in it and the peasantry was a lot more invested in it. So that just, as I dug into it and dug into what people were doing in the name of like these demons and the investigations that were taken on, how seriously they were treating it all, I realised that it couldn't actually be this throwaway kind of thing that I put in the book where you're, as a modern day writer, you're almost tempted to scoff at it and sort of winker it just a little bit, even in the writing, in the same way it was, because there's lots of superstition in this, lots of occult as well. And you find yourself sort of automatically doing that, giving your protagonists that eye to these events, thinking, oh, that's a bit ridiculous, that person, I can't believe that person believes that. And it really, that was a part of historical writing that I hadn't understood, that I had to dial back those attitudes and just know which characters would have those attitudes, but give them a good reason for it. But also respect the characters who believed in this stuff, because 
if you do that, your reader does it as well. Your reader then can more easily go along with it and believe that there could be a devil behind this crime, which was the ultimate aim. But that took a lot of fiddling with it. Really did take a lot of editing and redrafting because when I'm just writing, I'm in the flow. I'm just doing conversations, chats between characters. This stuff just comes out. And I would come back two days later and be like, oh, no, I've completely screwed the tone on that. And I think because you have made it difficult for yourself and, and also your characters, you know, we feel a certain dis- degree of sympathy with them, even the despicable ones. We, we feel their claustrophobia. You can smell how fetid it is below decks, how awfully weevily the biscuits are. <laughs> and, you know, we're, we're, we're travelling with them. And I know that the Sardam is actually based on a real ship and that you went and visited a reconstruction of it as part of your research. That's right, yeah. So the inspiration for this story was a real-life shipwreck, the shipwreck of the Batavia, which happened in 1629 off the coast of Australia. And I read about it while I was backpacking in Australia. And that's where the inspiration for the story came from because it stuck with me. That real-life story stuck with me because I'm 41 now. And I was backpacking in Australia when I was 23. So it's been with me for that length of time. When I started thinking about what my second novel would be, I knew that I didn't want to be pigeonholed. I didn't want to become the guy who'd written the eight deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle and the nine deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. <laughs> I, I just didn't want to be. And I knew there'd be a sort of clamour's too strong a word, but I understood that that's what some people would want from me. And I wanted to rail against that as, as much as I could. So setting a novel in 1634, Shipwreck, uh, supernatural, all these elements just struck me as absolutely perfect. So I went back to the Batavia and that the real life story is too gruesome. I didn't want to do that because there's already brilliant non-fiction novels written about what happened there. So I kind of took the guts of it. I wanted to take, I wanted to take the ship, I wanted to take the superstition, I wanted to take the era, even some of the character traits are taken from real life people on that boat in that story. But then I scoop them out and put the Sherlock Holmes mystery in it. But you get the benefit of being all this wonderful historical fiction stuff. You can go to this floating museum, which is the Batavia, which was wrecked, has been rebuilt in Amsterdam. And you can walk around it for two days, which is what I did. You can pester volunteers uh, on the boat for with, with questions about literally anything. And they have to stand there and answer them. It is incredible. Like You can just bother them for hours and they patiently will answer your questions. Because A... I think they're Dutch and B because they generally love seafaring. They love this period. And I don't, and they just are thrilled. So when I'm asking them about questions about rigging and you know, nautical terminology and even stupid things like this boat, we think of like galleons, we think of boats, we think of the big wheel, right? And we think of the sails and stuff. These boats didn't even have a wheel. Like it's pre that technology. So I'm going up to them being like, where's the wheel? And then that answer is a three-hour answer talking about whipstaffs and how all this technology works together. It was brilliant, mate. I loved it so much. <laughs> now, I had the great joy of rereading The Devil in the Dark Water before this interview. And whilst I thoroughly enjoyed the mystery of it, both the first and second times, I hadn't quite appreciated the crafty investigation and unpicking of the birth of capitalism and <laughs> and international trade that lies beneath the mystery you do like to get in a second level to your novels don't you oh i do so much yeah and that is 
what I like to do, I mean, just straightforwardly, I write every novel to be read two or three times. So there's going to be clues to the main mystery if you read one of my novels again that you'll get a second time through that you wouldn't have picked up in the first time because they're quite, I think, I hopefully craftily hidden. But that stuff, that thematic stuff, I'm always looking for that because whatever novel you write or I write, it nearly always has something to say about the world we live in. And it doesn't have to be a hammer over anybody's head. It doesn't have to be shouting at them through a foghorn. It's just, it is there, it's implicit. My first novel was all about the upper class. I'm from a working class town in the north of England. I had things to say about the upper class and they came out. This one, capitalism, this is the company that would send these ships across the ocean in 1629 had no regard whether they made it there or not. Their only care was for the for the cargo and for the profits that could be made from the cargo. I mean, does that sound like anybody? Does that sound like any modern companies that we know? It does, because these practices haven't changed awfully. And there's this strange idea that's come about, I think, through the US and through this sort of unbridled capitalism that companies should be allowed to do whatever they want. They should be allowed to treat their workers however they want. And it's just simply not true. And the more I got digging into these mercantile companies that were operating out of East India, out of Amsterdam, out of Batavia, the more I realized that these business practices, aside from the wholesale slaughter of people directly, haven't changed very much. It's horrific, mate. So I wanted just to put that in there just to sort of draw people's eye to it because it is, I think it's terrifying and I think it's awful. <laughs> so, Stuart, were you a massive fan of the golden age of crime books? Yeah, huge. And kind of a huge fan of them before I realised that what being a fan of something was. I My neighbour used to bring these stacks of books around for me from car boot sales when I was about eight. And I would just read, I honestly, about five or six of them a week. I would just like zoom through them. And I read them all the way from about eight till about 10 or 11. And I just, it became part of my routine. These books would always be there. And I got to the point of, it's interesting reading books that way reading Agatha Christie I didn't even want to be an author when I was there I had no idea what it was it wasn't a career that I chose myself but I was learning structure from her because I was recognizing patterns and how she was setting things up I was recognizing how she sketched a character very thinly at first and then as she needed more layers for the mystery, she would add them. And it was a very sort of efficient, economical way of writing a novel. I now realised that because she was writing three or four a year, there was no other way she could get that amount of novels out. But it was fascinating to me, even as a nine, 10-year-old, to be reading something and beginning to see these patterns, beginning to see these decisions being made. And also, I just adored them. I loved reading them. I loved playing the game with her. And that was what it felt like to me. It felt like a board game that I was playing with Agatha Christie. It didn't feel like a novel. It felt like something I could interact with. It felt tactile to me. These houses felt like places I could go to. And if you forgive me, I think I've said this before, but I grew up quite poor in a working class town in the north of England. A country house occupied by rich people made no sense to me that's my lord of the rings that's my gandalf that's my wizards and dwarfs i couldn't make head and a tail of it it was a fantasy like i'd never seen before and i had genuine questions for my mom reading these books and i'd be like what do they do for jobs and she was like well they're rich and i'm like what's rich and she, it's just like it's an abundance of money so they don't have to do anything and i'm like well why do they have to do things and we don't have to do things like it it I, it started so many conversations in my head and i obviously christy didn't write it with that intention but a lot of this stuff and a lot of my thinking about capitalism and, and thinking about uh, social structures and class comes from reading those novels. So you 
basically have taken the the classic 1920s country house murder mystery and put it through a kind of macabre prism. It's 19 years after Evelyn Hardcastle has been murdered. The house is decaying. There's something very sort of Miss Havisham-esque. The wallpaper's peeling, bits are falling off, the, the, the foliage is encroaching from outside. Everybody's a bit kind of skanky around the edges and you've gathered them all together just as Poirot would have gathered them at the end of the mystery at styles or whatever and your protagonist has to solve the murder of Evelyn Hardcastle but the twist is she's still alive and he's got a week to do it and he comes back as a different character every single day and if he doesn't work out who's done it she's going to die again on an endless loop and it it is we call it Cluedo in the UK I know it's called Clue in Canada and the United States it is a macabre game of Cluedo yeah very much and everything from the sort of the design up of the book was supposed to emphasize that so when you open the book up it's got a map at the front of it the map is very sort of board game-esque it's got all the rooms you've got the list of characters which again is very clue-esque I wanted to have that same sense for the reader that I got reading Agatha Christie's all those years ago that it was a game I am inviting you to play against me it is and people don't believe this until I think they read the novel a second time through it is completely fair you can read that book and pick up on the clues and you can solve it before my protagonist solves it. It's all there in front of you and you get it at exactly the same time the detective gets it. And part of that is why I wrote it in the present tense, um, first person. So you're literally seeing the world through that character's eyes in real time almost. So he never has anything apart from a few thoughts towards the end for drama that you don't have. So in that sense, it is it is very much a game. It is very much something I want you to participate in. And I think people have really enjoyed that element, but people haven't necessarily picked up the fact that that is possibly the most, apart from the house and the guests and the secrets and the murder weapons, that element of being a board game, being fun, is the most direct homage to Christie that I could think of. That is the thing that I took from her novels more than almost anything else. It must have taken an enormous amount of planning. I, I, I imagine your your writing room must have been like a police murder wall, just covered <laughs> with, with scribbles and post-its. Yeah, but that wasn't for the book. That was just for my enemies. Um, <laughs> and I like the way you said, like, writing room. That's a beautiful, that's a beautiful idea. When I decided to write that book, I left quite a nice life behind to do it. I was a travel journalist in Dubai, travelling every other week. I was making quite a good wage. I lived in a really nice place. But I couldn't write Seven Deaths in Dubai. Dubai is deserts and skyscrapers and materialism. And I needed to go somewhere that was had the class system and rain and gloom and these sorts of people. So I, had to, I went back to the UK and I brought my then girlfriend, now wife, with me. And we lived in a tiny little flat, mate. Like it was the most, oh God. But it was a time that the, the roof leaked every time it rained and it always rained in London. Uh, it was above a children's nursery. So there was the smell of like nappies wafting up the stairs. Um, all these things were happening. And I was crammed into the corner of our bedroom, which was a kind of little space. And I, I had to go and buy a little, um, what you call them? You know, those things when you used to, I do wallpapering and you sort of like used to slap the 
the stuff on the back. And it was like a wallpapering desk, I guess, is what you call that. Wallpapering table, yeah. One of the ones you fold open. That's right. I had one of those. It was in the side of my room uh, because it was the only thing that was kind of small enough to go in there. So I had that in a little chair, like a little dining room term, and that's where I wrote Seven Deaths. And I would just, I would put post-it notes all over the walls. And to go to your question about the planning, it was three months and it, it was just an Excel spreadsheet in the end. It was every two minutes of every character's day in the house. And I started with the murder and I knew I had to have an impossible murder because that's Christie to me as well. That's what I wanted to get to. But how do you write an impossible murder when you've got effectively a time traveling detective? The time traveling detective knows that Evelyn's going to die. He should theoretically just be able to follow her around all day and see who kills her. That's the problem with the planning. So I had to work out a murder that he wouldn't be able to immediately solve, but then didn't feel so convoluted that it'd come out of a Warner Brothers cartoon. And that's occasionally I would get there in my planning. I would almost have like pianos dangling out of windows and these incredibly convoluted methods of trying to kill Evelyn. And it had to feel a bit more down to earth within, I should say, within the, the specter of a Christie novel where things are quite heightened. So Excel spreadsheets and then a massive map of the house and grounds. And I plotted every character's movements in like lines all the top of that. So I could see where people were. So I could see who could overhear who, who would be out of earshot of that gunshot, who would know what. And that's how I did it because I wanted it to be completely fair. I didn't want it to cheat. I didn't want characters teleporting across the house to make plot points happen. I wanted it to feel as naturalistic as possible. I also wondered if maybe you'd been channeling a bit of H.G. Wells as far as the whole time travel element is concerned definitely i mean i i would go looking for inspiration because i wanted to sort of if i was going to do a bit of sci-fi a bit of time travel even a little bit of fantasy and a bit of gothic because there's a lot of gothic mm. in this novel as well with the house and some of the characters even i wanted to pull from the best in the genre so i would go and read hg wells i would go and read um daphne de maurier i would go and read uh, there was a lot of Kafka. I read a lot of Kafka for this as well, for that sense of disorientation. And I was trying to sort of like look at their techniques and trying to look at how they create these feelings and their structure. What structures did they use? Because these novels are, I try to make them as technically complicated as I can as well. Like I want the writing of them to be special. I want them to feel dense and rich and thematically interesting, but also structurally interesting. So that's two levels. It's not just about writing nicely and writing a nice paragraph. It's about borrowing a structure and understanding how a sci-fi structure works versus a gothic structure, how does a romance structure work versus a science fiction structure. And I wanted to sort of like weave those things together as much as I could so that you don't feel those joins, but they are definitely there. Were you surprised by how hugely successful the novel became? Yeah, yeah, I'm surprised. <laughs> and to this day, I'm surprised more than five people read that book. Like, it took me two and a half years to write Seven Deaths. And I um, I think I got about a year into it before I realised what I was doing and how difficult it was going to be. And then when I got to the second year, and I started to really sort of like crumble uh, midway through my second year because I was having a lot of doubts, as I said, I'd given up a lucrative job. I convinced my wife to give up a lucrative job. I had taken freelance work. I was doing a few journalistic articles a week to pay the bills and go for a pint with my mates, but that was it. So we had no money. We couldn't do anything. And it was it was pretty miserable there for a while. And I suddenly began to doubt what I was doing. I suddenly began to panic that I'd given it all up for this thing that I couldn't pull off because 
when you're in the middle of a novel, you have no idea what it's going to come out like. You just you just don't know. All the elements are just. It's like making. Uh, I don't know. It's like making bread. Like it generally is. Everything gets thrown in there, and you hope it rises, and you hope when it comes out, it looks vaguely like a loaf and tastes vaguely like a loaf. And I just couldn't work out because I wasn't using bread ingredients. What I was using was like it was. I was using cake ingredients and soup ingredients, and I was trying to throw in some like meat. I, it was just. It was nuts. And I didn't know, it was my debut novel. I'd never written, I wasn't one of those guys who had a novel in his drawer that he'd written before and it never gone anywhere. This was the first long form thing that I'd ever written. And I had no clue whether I could pull it off. And when I got to the end of it, my only feeling was being exhausted. I was just exhausted. And I finished it because I couldn't have written it a day longer. That was all. I didn't I didn't stop because I'd reached the end. I stopped because I literally was about to reach my end. So I went out in whatever state I could finish it off and I sent it out. And I remember thinking I've wasted my time. Like I've spent two and a half years on this thing and I've made a mess and it's really embarrassing. And how am I going to explain this to anybody? That's kind of how I finished that book. So no, I had no belief that anybody would read it. Well, there's a line in the novel, which I think could be your mantra. And I think it certainly explains why it did become such a huge success. One of your characters says, because eternity is dull and playing is what it's all about. Hmm. And it was like opening a new board game and just disappearing upstairs and playing with it. Is that fair to say that that is your mantra for writing these incredibly twisty, turny, fun novels? Yeah, I do think it is it. Like my, We've talked a lot about themes and structure and density but yeah fundamentally i just want people to have fun i want to have fun because i find writing to be the most ludicrously difficult and boring thing on the planet sitting down to my computer for eight hours a day is not what i would have chosen to do with myself and that sounds incredibly ungrateful so i'm just going to unpack it a little bit if that's okay I don't mean that I don't like this job. I mean that the actual act of sitting in front of a computer for eight hours trying to draw this thing out of your imagination is really hard and it could be really tedious because not everything you write is the fun bits of the novel. You also have to write the bits that you personally find dull. I find exposition incredibly tedious. So on those days, the thing that gets me through is the idea that tomorrow I'm going to write a really fun thing for myself. I'm going to write a really interesting scene. I'm going to write an interesting conflict. I'm just going to have some people punching each other. Like I'm going to have something that is technically challenging for me to write. And I love that. And those days when I sit down, it's a problem to be solved. That's when I love this job the most. So that's where I start is how do I make this fun for myself? And then it's, I need, I know, and I'm keenly aware that, my novels are competing for people's attention with Netflix. They're competing for people's attention with video games and, I don't know, bouncy castles and football and ice skating and a million other things. Your kid's screaming in the background. I have to earn your attention. I don't have any belief that I'm entitled to your attention. And my books are long. They're 130,000 words, both ones I've written. I'm asking for a lot of your time and I'm asking for a lot of your attention. So I'm determined to earn it. That's every single set of time I sit down, I'm asking myself, am I earning my reader's attention here? Am I giving them something that's fun, that's interesting, that's different, that makes them think, or just at least keeps them occupied? And if I'm not doing that, I will change it. 
Well, I know that you have already sold the rights to the next two novels. And after the break, we will come on to those and maybe get a sneak preview as to what we can expect in the next year or so. This is My Life in Books on AMI-audio with Red Sale. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to My Life in Books on AMI-audio with host Red Sale. Welcome back to My Life in Books. Today, I'm in conversation with the author of The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle and The Devil in the Dark Water, Stuart Turton. Stu, we've talked about the two books that are already sitting on the shelves. What about the tricky third and fourth novels? Do you know what? The tricky third and fourth novels are turning out to be not so tricky. The second novel, as everybody always talks about, that was very tricky because the second novel was written, I just had a newborn baby. You are under the pressure of having written a successful first novel. I found that incredibly difficult. But the second novel's gone really well. So you're weirdly freed to write your third and fourth novels. And what that's really done is just given me the confidence to go even more nuts than I was going before and then take, I think, more risks possibly. So I'm going to say at the outset here, I'm not going to talk about anything specific about books three and four because I'm in a very privileged position that my publisher almost lets me write whatever I want. My publisher knows that I'm never going to write a sequel. I'm never going to write a prequel. I'm not a series guy. I'm going to take a long time to write my books, but they're always going to be different to the last. They're always going to be trying different things, taking different sorts of risks, setting different periods. They'll always have a mystery. They'll always be a body in some form of detective, but everything else is up for grabs, including the genres and mixing, the pacing of it, the character interactions, who they are, what they want, all that sort of stuff. I can do anything I want. So I genuinely want each book that I give to readers to be a surprise from first page to last, including what genre it is. Like, you know, where are we setting this one? What's going to happen? So I'm determined not to ruin any of those surprises before the book is out in the wild. I want people to pick it up and just not know what they're getting. And I love that idea. I would have loved that as a reader as well. So that's what I'm trying to do. I will say, though, that writing this one, writing the third one, has been a joy. Hopefully that joy will come through on the page as well. I know you love genre busting and obviously bearing in mind that you you can't give too much away but I take it it's another genre busting novel and another period piece. Ooh, who knows red? Who knows? <laughs> oh you man of mystery. It's um it's funny we talk about the idea of genre busting cross genre. I didn't know what that was until I wrote the novel, until I wrote Seven Deaths and it came out, and I wrote Devil and it came out, and people applied these labels to it. For me, it's just following the story where it goes. So I have these stories in my head that I want to tell these characters. I just follow them around until they get to the end of the story, and they seem to wander through genres. And it's a strange to me that I can't imagine how other authors stay in a single genre. I just don't know how they would do that. It's amazing to me that they can write with that inflexibility because I do need to potter about, I need to be able to wander into sort of like historical fiction or I need to wander into the Gothic. I need to, I'm always pulling from these sources and that's just the way my stories seem to kind of, so I don't want anyone to get the idea that I set out to write an across genre novel. I generally don't. I just set out to write the story that's in my head. Do you have a year that we can expect the next Stuart Turton to hit the shelves? 
yeah, so theoretically, with my book, it's always a question of how many deadlines I'm going to miss rather than whether I'll hit one. Uh, so we at this point, I've only missed one, which is it's pretty good for me. So it should be out next year, probably about February time, I would imagine. But if we can pull it off, it would probably be October or November, so just before Christmas. But yeah, so later this year or early next year. I'll pencil it in on my list to Santa then. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> now, I do want to come on to talk about the audiobooks. You have managed to land two of the best audiobook narrators in the business. Jot Davis for The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle and the amazing Julian Rind Tut, that doyen of detective novels for The Devil in the Dark Water. Oh, you must have been chuffed to bits. I was absolutely thrilled. The only thing I should say here is that I don't know if Canada got those audiobooks or whether it got the Cameron Stewart audiobook, because the US had a guy called Cameron Stewart who narrated both of them. What's fascinating to me is that they all took different angles on their performance. I didn't realise that was a thing you could do. The Julian Ryan taught uh, version of Devil and Dark Water is thrilling because he finds so much, there's such a twinkle in his performance all the way through it, he finds lines and he elevates them and he makes them funny and he, he he makes you suspicious because of the way he delivers certain clues. He's got an instinctive understanding of where to sort of like put your attention when he's reading that. I find that absolutely stunning. And Jot was just, I'll never know how Jot Davis got through seven deaths because there's so many characters. He rang me up before he started. And he was talking to me about how he wanted to approach it and the sort of accents that would be employed. And I hadn't even thought about it. I couldn't give him any answers. I was the most useless guy he could have spoken to. He could have gone and talked to the local wino on the street who would have been able to give him more information. It was awful. And he, at the end of it, without any help from me whatsoever, he turns up with this incredible performance where he manages to perfectly embody all of these characters but delineates them perfectly so you always know who's who who's doing what who's thinking what it was something else if i may uh, i've got a quite a funny story about uh, julian ryan tut uh, that'll just take a few minutes if that's okay please do i want to preface this by saying that i am awful at admin I am just bad at it and I just don't have the head for it and it, I forget things and I'll put them in the calendar and then I just won't look at the calendar. Everything is awful. and I'm a terrible human being, but I'm very bad at admin. So uh, to the point where now I've had to sort of turn it all over to my wife to do it on my behalf because otherwise nothing would ever happen. This was exemplified by two events in the middle of writing Devil in Dark Water. So it's worth knowing that when I'm writing a novel, I'm even worse than I would be normally because all of my thoughts are on the book. I am, as my wife puts it, you're simply not present that's how she describes it. I'm somewhere else entirely. And um, two things were happening. One was that I was getting a lot of these books signed. And it was in the middle of the pandemic. So we couldn't go to the warehouse as normal. So somebody suggested that they deliver the books to my house. Now, it was something like 15,000 hardbacks that were coming on pallets. And at some point, I had simply told the, the warehouse that, yes, of course, they could deliver 15,000 books on pallets to my house. I had the smallest house in the world. It was two bedrooms, a tiny little cottage. I had no garden, no space. There was no way one of these pallets would fit in my house, let alone, I think there was 25 or 30 of them. I get a phone call as this truck is racing down the motorway on the way to my house saying, hey, I'm coming with these pallets. Can you make sure there's space outside your house for me to pull up? And I simply responded with, who's this? 
what's going on. So, uh, no, I can't fit those books. You're going to have to turn the truck around. I'm so sorry. And so that was at the 11th hour. I turned 15,000 hardbacks around on a motorway because they couldn't fit in my house, thus putting a lot of people out to immense cost and time. Uh, the day after this, I got a phone call from the studio. We had planned to um, – Julian Rintot was flying in. Again, in the middle of the pandemic, he was on a shoot somewhere in Europe. They were going to fly him back in. He was going to read his portion of the novel – and at the end of it, I was going to come into the studio and meet him, and he was going to ask me some questions, and we'd have a bit of back and forth. That was the idea, and you would get that at the end of the audio book. Great idea. Uh, I put it in the calendar as audio thing. That's how I. <laughs> that's how I wrote it down, and then promptly forgot about it until there was a phone call from the studio saying, "Hi, Stu, Julian's here waiting for you. When will you be in?" I was not entirely in the country when this call came because <laughs> I forgot about it. I thought it was a podcast or something. So yeah, poor Julian Rantot had flown all the way over to do an event that I, and then I stood up the famous actor who was doing a brilliant job on my book. So I ended up having to go into the studio two days later. He recorded this section and I had to go in and pretend that I was talking to him and answering these questions because I'm a moron. So that's my Julian Rantot audiobook story. Well, Bless your wife for having set up this recording between the two of us, and very, very many thanks for remembering it. So far, we've talked about the books that he's written, but now it's time for the books of his life. So, Stuart, was there a book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author? So I started off, we've talked about Agatha Christie, so I won't um, go back over that ground, but that was definitely part of it. But previous to that, I'd been reading Roald Dahl novels. I think that's where I get the sense that a book should have shades. A proper book should have darkness. Even if it's a kid's book, like a Roald Dahl novel was, it should have darkness, but it should have humour. It should have jokes. You can be as outrageous as you want as long as you tell the reader up front that this is what we're doing this is the journey we're going on i do think with readers you have to be honest all the time it's this is what kind of novel you're going to get come with me or don't but make your choice up front so i think Roald Dahl was the one where i was like that's why i love box that's why i was willing to read those like at the christie's because i read Roald Dahl and it was as fun as anything else i could have been doing that day whether i was playing football or watching tv or playing on my spectrum at the time um yeah so Roald Dahl is the one that got me started and was there a specific novel that really clicked with you yeah so my the first one i read actually was his memoir boy which was a strange choice for a kid to read because I didn't really I didn't really understand what a memoir was or an autobiography. And it was just stunning because his life was so interesting. And do you know what? Now we're talking, I think I've spent a lot of my life traveling. When I left university, I went traveling for five years. I've lived in a lot of different countries. Even now, my daughter's three and a half and she's been on a plane at least 30 times. Like we try and imbue this love of I became a travel journalist. We're trying to imbue this love of traveling. And I think it possibly thinking about comes from Boy, because Boy is all about this this kid who's growing up all over the world and having all these different experiences and adventures with all these different people and all these different cultures. And I was just fascinated by that, and I, I adored it. So I think Boy was the one that got me started. And is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread? Yeah, I always reread The God of Small Things by Aranati Roy, which is not the most cheerful of reads, but it is... 
oh it's beautiful i mean it is completely beautiful the the writing in that novel is exquisite every page of that every line of it is like nothing else i've ever read and even if i'm not in the mood to read that entire book top to bottom I'll just spin through and I'll go and read page 75 or go on page 90 and I'll sit there for an hour or two and just read a chunk of it because it is so wonderful. And there's something in that novel, there's some genius in it that as I get older, I read it for the first time in my mid-20s. And as I'm getting older, I'm identifying with different characters because it spans a generation. So you're getting this different age range of characters and I'm identifying with different characters as I get older. And that's something else. That's ability to dip back into a book that you love and have read maybe 50 or 60 times and still be finding things new and things that resonate in different ways. That's a gift. And finally, is there a book that you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners? Yeah. Like everybody else, I discovered Amor Towels with um, a gentleman in Moscow. I say everyone else, that's incredibly arrogant. I don't know, maybe other people, I imagine a lot of other people got there before me. But I read A Gentleman in Moscow, which I really loved. And now I'm going through his back catalogue. So I'm just finishing off Rules of Civility, which I think is his first one. And it's 10 years old at this point, which stuns me. And again, that is an utterly beautiful piece of writing. Like the story hasn't gone where I thought it would go. And there's things about it that I'm not enjoying quite as much as a gentleman in Moscow. But every page of the writing is something else. And there's always something I'm reading that's just like slightly just stopping a breath in my throat because of the way the perspective on it is found or a metaphor that's so clever and so different. Oh, I, so I think I've blasted through that book in about three days because I just can't bear to put it down. I love it. Well, Stuart Turton, thank you so much for sharing your joy of reading with the listeners and for being a guest on the show today and giving us such wonderful insight into both The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle and The Devil in the Dark Water. And I can't wait to get you back onto the show to talk about this mysterious third novel. Oh, thanks, mate. It's always so much fun. Thanks for having me on today. I appreciate it. That's it for this episode of My Life in Books. Thanks again to my guest, Stuart Turton, and to the show's producer, Sean Preece. He and I are already working on the next episode, so don't forget to join us, same time, same place, to listen to another top author, Talking Books. Meanwhile, if you'd like to drop us a line or leaf through our back catalogue, here's how. Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favorite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this program by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books, or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time. Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Juita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.